0: Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues his series, Over the Rainbow. In today's talk, we focus on when death happens. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church.
1: Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, known uh, to theologians as the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. Today we're going to talk about the sting of death. We're continuing our series called Over the Rainbow. We're looking at life kind of like Dorothy. You know, right now we're living in this world full of trouble, and it looks like real life, but it's not. We got uh, wagons breaking down like Dorothy, incubators that break down on Antiem, and Dorothy's falling into pig pens. It's a world full of difficulty, trial, and trouble. And like her, she's looking for a land beyond this weird sepia-toned world of pain and anguish and sorrow, and she's looking for that place that you can't get to by boat or train that is beyond, she says, the rain, the first heaven, beyond the moon, the second heaven. She's looking for something beyond that. She doesn't know what to call it. We know to call it heaven and the presence of God. But she's looking for that, and she doesn't know what it is because she's not a theologian. Now, when we see a, a sermon titled The Sting of Death, it's, even as Christians, we don't, we don't relish talking about death, do we? It's not very fun to talk about death. In our hearts, we're all like the great theologian Kenny Chesney. You with me? Everybody want to go to heaven, right? Have a mansion high up in the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but... what? A... Nobody wants to go now. Yeah, you can quote Kenny Chesney. You guys can't quote Romans, though. <laughs> but that's how we are sometimes. Uh, instead, I think we need, to have a, we need to have a mindset like C.S. Lewis. He, quote, he said this, and it's a great quote. He says, Has this world been so kind to you that we should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. There are better things ahead, friends. This here, this sepia-toned world that looks like life is not life, it's full of trouble and difficulty, but there will come a day when we're gonna look beyond all the trials of today. There won't be child can't childhood cancer. There won't be people in the hospital. There won't be sorrow, there won't be inflation. There won't be $4 a gallon gas, amen. Okay. Uh, there will be a day when we are in the presence of God, but to get there, there's a doorway that we all have to go through, and it's called death. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to reorient our thinking about death. He's going to teach us a few things. The first thing is, is that, one, death is necessary for true life. You don't want to stay here forever. Verse 50, he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. First of all, I want to mention that Paul is speaking here what he's about to say he's going to share with brothers. These people are true believers in Jesus Christ, not just people who say they're religious, not just people who had come to church a little bit here and there, who the word of God never got into them, it's never transformed them, it's never changed them, just someone who chanted a prayer. No, he's talking about those who are true brothers, believers in Jesus Christ. So this message today is not for everybody, okay? Everybody doesn't go to heaven just because you're sincere just because you work really hard at it, just because we believe in it strongly, every religion doesn't go to the same place, does it? Okay, Jesus says, I am the way. It's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so he's talking to brothers here. I always think it's amazing, sometimes we do funerals for people, and everybody knows the person we're doing the funeral for it has been a scoundrel their whole life. You know, but what do we say? Well, he's in a better place. And some of you are doing a double take. Who's in there? Who are we talking about here? You know, we all know this guy, you know, cursed Jesus to the day he died, but we're going to say he's in a better place. I know what you mean. We want to be respectful of those who have passed away. But friends, uh, we perpetrate a falsehood with that. Now, I'm not gonna, I'm, I've never done a funeral I said, well, poor Jack here, he's in hell and burning right now. Uh, I've never done a funeral like that, and never will. But friends, we also don't wanna lie to folks and act like you can live however you want, you can live apart from God and still be in heaven, and, and you're gonna be in a better place, no. For the vast majority of people, the Bible says, why it is the gate that leads to destruction. Which means most people don't die and go to a better place. Most people, the vast majority of people, the Bible says, go to someplace far worse. What place is that? Come back next week, we'll talk a little bit about it. But let's dispel a couple myths about death and dying here. Uh, when you die, friends, uh, we don't become angels. People say that all the time, even Christians who've been in church all their life. When you die, you don't become an angel. Friends, for a believer in Christ, that's a downgrade. Did you realize that? When Jesus came to earth to be a man, it says he was made a little lower than the angels. Uh, what is an angel exactly? Hebrews tells us in 1.14, he says of angels, are they not all ministering spirits? They're sent out to serve whom? Us, he, they serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Who are those who inherit salvation? That's you and I. Angels serve God and are sent out to do God's bidding as it relates to you and I. Angels are servants. If you're Batman, angels are Alfred, okay? You don't want your kids to grow up to be Alfred. Okay? you The angels are serving, they're ministering spirits. It's why we don't worship angels. We don't, we don't lift up angels. We don't put angels as bumper stickers. We don't wear angels around our neck. And our loved ones don't die and become angels. Angels were a select order of servants created by God to do his bidding. What are you and I when we die? We're children of the most high. We sit at his table. And so we're not angels when we die. We just need to be aware of that. I know what you're saying but let's be theologically accurate here. Uh, Myth number two, we don't become ghosts, okay? Daddy's not in the living room helping out your daughter doing her algebra. He's not, you know? And whatever it is you think you saw down by the barn, it wasn't daddy, it wasn't Elvis, it wasn't Tupac, it wasn't any of these who have gone on and died before us. When we die, what happens to man? Hebrews 9, 27 makes it clear. It's appointed for man to die once. By the way, there goes reincarnation. It's appointed and demand to die one time and after that comes the judgment. God determines whether or not you're going to spend eternity with him or somewhere else less favorable, okay? Uh, it, it happens at that moment. Now sometimes we really desire to see somebody here. We really desire, and we, even as Christians, sometimes we can speak of those who have gone on before us and we say, well, His presence is right here with us or He's still helping us out. He's watching over us. His presence is guiding me. He's still giving us wisdom. Friends, what have we just attributed to your mate or that person who has passed on? You've attributed to them divine characteristics. These are things that God does. When we teach that and believe that, friends, that's not Christianity, that's Shintoism, that's ancestor worship. We're giving to our our deceased loved ones things that belong to God. They see all, they watch all, they're ever-present, they guide us, they help us, they instruct us. Friends, that's only what God does. And I know what you mean. You so long to be in their presence, but friends, can I tell you, if you're struggling and suffering right now because of the the giant gaping hole that a loved one who has passed away has left in your life, can you go to God instead of looking for the presence of a mate? Even if you swear that you saw something down by the barn last week, friends, it wasn't your loved one. It could be a demonic presence. It could just be that we really desired to see something. But if if there's a gaping hole in your heart for a loved one who's passed away, friends, look to find it in God. He says he is a a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widows. Okay, so this this longing that we have to bring our mate back into this world, can I tell you right now, if they're in heaven, your mate doesn't want to come back no matter how much they love you. They don't want to come back to this bizarre, trouble-filled, sepia-tone world of, of, uh, of Kansas. They want to be in Oz, if you will. They want to be in... They want to be in heaven. They want to be in that place in the presence of God. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is encouraging brothers, believers to understand death and why it exists. It's necessary to free us from Kansas, okay? It's necessary to free us from this trouble-filled world that we live in. God doesn't want us to live forever here on earth. Even if somebody offered you eternal life, if you're a theologically accurate Christian, you'd say, uh-uh, no way I want to live here forever. In fact, remember when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3? And God had to cast them from his presence and he cast them out of the garden to keep them from coming back in the garden. What would God do? You find it in Genesis 3. It says, now lest he, Adam, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, he placed a cherubim, that's an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why didn't God want Adam and Eve to go back in the garden and eat of the tree of life? He didn't want them living in an eternal state of fallenness. And so if we're going to think like God does, we don't want to be here forever. While we're here, we want to be Active in serving the Lord, that's what Paul said, for me to be here, it's better for your sake, but for my sake, I long to be where God is, and that's far greater. And so no, there's better things ahead than anything we leave behind. So what happens exactly when we die? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse eight, talks a little bit about this. He says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay? To be away from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. It's in a moment. Jesus told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, he says, truly I say to you, when? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is an interesting word. It was an actual oriental word that was used back then. And the Bible borrows that to kind of describe a little bit about what the presence of God is like. A paradise, a para, meaning like around, uh, a wall, it's a wall around, it's describing a walled up garden. If you spent all this time making this beautiful garden with beautiful flowers and great fruit, you're in Kentucky, right? So what do you do? You build a wall around, right? You're gonna protect it so no evil or corrupting influence is gonna get in there and destroy everything that you created. And that's how the Bible describes in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, or, or Jesus describes in Luke 23, what heaven is like. It's a paradise, it's a wall around. What's the wall meant to keep out? keep out? It's meant to keep you and I out, hang on, because we're sinful beings. God can't allow even one sin into heaven, can he? In that paradise, you allow one sin in, what happens? We go from the Garden of Eden to Detroit. Now, if you grew up in Detroit, don't email me and tell me how great Detroit is. You vacation in Gatlinburg, okay, nobody goes there. You don't wanna live in Detroit for eternity, okay? One sin makes this world everything that it is. One sin and you get cancer and taxes and death and suffering and gangs. You don't want one sin into heaven, not even if you're the one carrying it in. You want to be cleansed by Jesus so that you can enter into paradise, a wall around. You can enter into this beautiful garden, this beautiful place that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, let's dispel a couple other myths. When we die, friends, we don't go into soul sleep, okay? We don't just die and then fall asleep and then we're not consciously aware of what's going on until Jesus calls us uh, to judgment. That's not in the Bible. Jesus told the thief today, you will consciously be aware of where you are and you will be with me in paradise. Also, we don't go to purgatory. Now, if you're from a Catholic background, I'm gonna try to be as gentle and loving as I can here. Friends, purgatory is not in the Bible. Search far and wide, you won't find purgatory. It comes from the word purge, it means that it's, you're going to go to a place when you die someday and you're gonna purge off the rest of whatever Jesus' atonement didn't cover. What does that say about Jesus' atonement now? It's insufficient. We can't say that about Jesus' atonement, that it's insufficient, that somehow we're to, to move on, to go beyond Jesus, to take into our body you know, a certain amount of suffering so that we can make up for ourselves. Friend, if you had to, you'd never get out, can I tell you that? Because we have offended an infinite God, the price against God is infinite. And so if Jesus only paid half of infinite, all you have to do is pay the other half of infinite. You're never, if there's a purgatory, friends, you're never getting out. You don't wanna suffer for your own sins. I'm glad that we have a Jesus who Hebrews 10:12 says, Christ suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and he sat down at the right hand of God. What does it mean when a person sits down? It means the job's done. When Jesus died on the cross, what were his final words? It is started, no. It started and you gotta finish it. I did did my part, now you gotta do your part. That's not the message of the Bible, it's finished. Tetalestai, paid in full, it's done. Everything God demands for your sin and the sins of the entire world are wrapped up in Jesus and it's done. I'm so glad, I don't wanna go to purgatory. And you don't have to worry about it. Purgatory was created by man. Pope Gregory, 1170 AD, realized that uh, people weren't, you know, they're not coming to church like they should. Evidently, people skipping out on church was a problem back then, We don't have that today. Uh, but they wouldn't do that and they wouldn't give and they wouldn't do all these other things and so what you had to tell people is you go to, you're gonna go to purgatory and burn but here's some ways you can get rid of that. You can give money to the church, you can uh, come to the Mass and you can cause, you know, we can, have, we can literally sacrifice Jesus every Sunday. And that's what the Mass is, by the way. Don't make any mistake about it. That's, they say it's the actual body and blood of Jesus and he's being sacrificed again. But what does the Bible say? Hebrews 10, 12, single sacrifice. We don't sacrifice Jesus every Sunday. He did it once and it paid everything in full. So at death, believers immediately enter into the presence of God, into where right now Jesus has already gone to prepare a place for us. It's called the New Jerusalem. When we describe heaven, what we're actually describing, and more on this in two weeks, come back in two weeks, but um, he's describing the New Jerusalem which is in heaven right now. And eventually that place with the pearly gates and the streets of gold and all that is gonna descend, Revelation 21.2 says it's gonna descend down to the new earth. And friends, if the, if the New Jerusalem, the capital city of the New Earth is any indicator, this New Earth is gonna be a humdinger, I'll tell you what. 1,200 miles wide, 1,200 miles long, and 1,200 miles high? That's a city, that's just a city, okay? So that's where our loved ones are right now. They're in the presence of God. Now, they don't have glorified bodies yet. They exist right now as a spirit. You say, well, that's a bummer. Friends, God exists as a spirit. I don't think God feels like he's missing out on anything. The Holy Spirit exists as a spirit. Now, they will be given new resurrection bodies one day. When? At the rapture. We'll talk a little bit more. Our text, will imp- we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Now, what, the actual death process, what's it like? You ever thought about that? I mean, it's something we're all gonna experience. You ever thought about it? at that moment? You're wondering, you know, God, is it, you know, we're all praying this, God, take me in my sleep. Can I just go peacefully and without even any awareness of what's happening? And some of us will get that privilege. Other of us, you know, it may be car wreck or something. For many of us, we'll see it coming a little ways off, won't we? You know, there'll be cancer. There'll be some kind of heart issues. There'll be, and we're gonna see that the time is, is shortening and my time to approach the Lord is, is on its way. What's that gonna be like? what's it like to die there was a young boy who had a terminal illness who asked his mother this and it's a true story and the, he had some terminal illness and the mom was just reading him some stories in his bed and about king arthur and the arthurian legends and there's a lot of death in those stories if you've ever read them and so the boy just asked the mom says what's it going to be like when i die what's what's that going to be like and the mom just couldn't take it. She ran into the kitchen and said, I got to check a pot on the stove. It's like what you and I were doing. And we, she ran to the kitchen and she just buried her fingernails into the cupboard and she's, she just cried out to God, give me something. And God did. And she went back into her young boy, his, his name was Kenneth, and she went back to Kenneth's room and she says, you asked me what it's like to die. She says, you remember when you were just a tiny little boy? And you'd go outside all day and you would play hard and you'd be so exhausted from a, a day of just running and playing and activity and work and you'd just come in and you would just flop on mom and dad's bed and fall asleep. And then the next morning you'd wake up in your own room and you're wearing your bed clothes and uh, you're waking up and you feel fully refreshed and alive and you're ready to tackle a new day. Remember, you remember how that feels? She says, that's what death is like. You close your eyes in death after, an, after being exhausted, after a hard day's work, after a hard life, and you just close your eyes in death, and you're in a place you don't belong, like mom and dad's bed. You're in a place that you don't belong, but then your loving father comes in and sees you in this state, and he comes to you, and he knows what you need, and he knows where you belong, and he personally, with his strong arms, picks you up, he gets you prepared for where you're going, and he takes you to where you belong, and then you open your eyes in eternity with him, with your father. She says, that's what heaven is like. That was the final illustration that a fellow named Peter Marshall gave in a message. He was supposed to preach to a group of Annapolis midshipmen at their graduation. And he had a certain message to preach, but at the end he just really felt strongly led of the Lord to preach something else. And he preached on death and how to face God. That particular group of men, it was December 7th, 1941. What was that? that's Pearl Harbor and so a lot of these men it's almost like God just took a lot of these men who he, God knew were going to go to their death and he wanted to get them ready he wanted to prepare them to face their God and today friends I'd like you to be prepared to face your God friends if we don't prepare you for eternity as a church we haven't done our job I don't just want to prepare you how to live your best life now as a Christian this isn't your best life now this is the closest thing to hell you're going to get to this sepia tone world ain't your heaven but it's coming Number two, we're gonna see that death is necessary for our new body. He says in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. This is something that hasn't been revealed before. And then he gives what is called the great nursery verse, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That'll dawn on some of you a little bit later, okay? We shall not all sleep. What he's talking about is that we're not all gonna die, but we will all be changed. Everybody has to have a new body. Whether you're taken up to the Lord in the rapture, whether you're taken up to the Lord in death, you can't keep this old sack of bones. Aren't you glad? Anybody here want to keep this old beat-up body that you've got? You know, I'm missing several organs in my body. My gallbladder's in Asia somewhere. My appendix is in another country in Asia somewhere. I'm being slowly buried piece by piece. I don't want this old body. My hair is turning white and gray, and my wife lets me know I've got a... A thinning patch in the back of my head. Thank you very much, sweetheart. Um, This body isn't meant to be forever. Paul calls this a tent for a reason. I mean, look on the back of your, your shirt sleeve. It should say like Coleman on the back of you. This is a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. You're not meant to live here forever. We are supposed to be changed. And when is that gonna happen? When do we get, when does our loved one get their glorified bodies? Read on. He says it's gonna happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, and the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. What's being described in this event? The rapture of the church. Some of you are like, "Um, excuse me, sir, Uh, the rapture is not mentioned in the Bible. The word rapture isn't in our English Bible, you're correct. The event of the rapture is mentioned several times in the Bible. You can find it in Acts 8.39, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, Revelation 12, 5, our passage here today, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Rapture, where do we get the word rapture then? Okay, it comes from this passage here, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive who are left, it says will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet, them, meet the Lord in the air and so shall we always be with the Lord. That word caught up together in the English is, is a single word in the Greek and it's harpazo. Sounds like what kind of musical instrument? A harp, who said trumpet? Okay, a harp, okay. Uh, what do you do with a harp? You, you blow it, do you bang on it? What do you do with a harp? You pluck it, don't you? You pluck it. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, That's what we do with the harp. That's what harpazo means. It's, it's God plucking up a believer from the earth. And I'm glad we use the term rapture because I don't want to be involved in an event called the great plucking. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's, it's the plucking of God of his people in the rapture. He, we are, it says we will be caught up together with him. And so no, this is mentioned several times in scripture, this event, it will take place. And frankly, depending on your eschatology, the order of end time events, my understanding is biblically that that's the next thing on God's menu. And we don't know, it could happen before we leave the service. Just all of a sudden, the believers are gone. In the twinkling of an eye, at that moment, we could be transported into the presence of God. And so at that time, oh, and by the way, let me just pause here. Uh, One of the reasons I believe it's immediate, or it's, it's, it's imminent, it's not some future thing, there's a lot of confusion about this word at the last trumpet. Trumpets are mentioned quite often in the Bible. They're announcing the arrivals of certain things. And there are some people who have mistakenly tried to attach the rapture of the church to one of the trumpet judgments of Revelation. That's not the last trumpet he's talking about here. Trumpets are mentioned all over scripture. Read through the trumpet judgments of Revelation. None of them have to do with the rapture of the church. They have to do with things like um, trees burning, mountains burning, however that happens. Uh, You know, stars burning up. There's a lot of burning in the trumpet judgments of Revelation. Uh, But there's no rapture associated with it. In fact, if you look at the chronology of Revelation, before the tribulation events, the seals, the bold, trumpets, and the bowl judgments begin, we see the saints are already in heaven, the 24 elders surrounding the thrones putting their cow- crowns before the Lord. That happens before any of the events of the of the tribulation. So what does he mean by the last trumpet here then? The Jews contextually would have understood what he meant. Anytime you were going to have a solemn assembly, okay, you were gonna have a solemn assembly, what you would do, we didn't have cell phones, Hey, I got a text here. We got to go meet. So what they would do is they would have these trumpet blasts, this really loud instrument. You know, and there would be several of them because we're all living in different places, right? Some have further to go. And so you would have a trumpet blast. We go, ah, there's a, tr- there's a solemn assembly today and it's getting close. Let's get ready. There'll be another trumpet blast. You know. Oh, okay. Well, those of you who live far away, you better get on the road. Okay, so there's like, oh, it's getting closer. We better, we better pick up the pace, honey. I told you you shouldn't have gone to the bathroom at the end, you know. And you're running to the solemn assembly. And then when the, everybody is finally gathered together in one place, there would be one final trumpet blast indicating that everybody had been gathered together. That's the last trumpet. That's what you would do when you would gather a solemn assembly. So the rapture of God is that solemn assembly where we're hearing all, we're seeing the signs of the times upon us. As we read through Revelation, we see what the last days are looking like, that men will be lovers of themselves and boastful and disobedient to parents and blah, 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 all that. Okay, God is saying, it's coming close. The time when I'm going to assemble all believers together in the rapture of the church, it's getting close, get ready. Okay, he just keeps, and just on and on and on, God gives us these these signs of the times. His time is soon coming. And the last trumpet is, it's that moment of the rapture when Jesus plucks his church from the earth and all of us are gathered in. Okay, so that's what he's talking about at the last trumpet. And so he says, uh, even those who are alive and remain at the rapture will have to turn in their old bodies too. They don't just go straight into heaven with these old bodies and everybody else got these beautiful glorified bodies. Verse Thessalonians 4, I'll give you the rest of the context. He says in verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you so, so that you don't grieve as others who have no hope. We shouldn't grieve for our lost ones in the way that the world does. I'll never see them again. He says, they don't have hope. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the message of Easter, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are falling asleep. So we're not gonna get our glorified bodies in the rapture before those who have died. They're gonna get theirs first. He says, uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, the solemn assembly. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So what happens to our loved ones at death? They are immediately ushered by God, picked up by his strong arms, put in the bed they belong. They're in the presence of God in a conscious spirit-like existence in the new Jerusalem enjoying the beauty and glory of all that's in heaven and at that time at the rapture of the church when the solemn assembly is called the church is brought together they will be be receiving their glorified bodies. Some people have asked why do the dead rise first? Because they have six feet further to go. That's not that funny a joke, it's really an old joke. It's not even true. So don't don't be telling your kids this at their Bible times tonight. Why do the dead in Christ rise first? Because the Bible says we're going to meet the Lord and Him in the air. He's going to bring these loved ones with Him and so they will rise first and it's gonna be this grand reunion when we get our bodies and we meet them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's this beautiful reunion. So in verse 53, Paul says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal body will put on immortality. God is going to give us this new clothing, this new body that we wear, because we're not allowed to enter the paradise of God dressed like this. It's like if you need to go get uh, your gallbladder removed. You know, you don't go out and work in the garden, bring your old dirty, stained-up Nike t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops. You don't walk into the hospital, and they just roll you right in and start cutting on you. They make you take a shower with dial soap, and they... uh, and then they put one of these beautiful one-size-fits-all breezy robes, you know, that you gotta wear. And it's what's been approved by the administration. This is clean. This is what's acceptable wear in this clean operating room. In the same way, God's like, in heaven, you don't get to, you don't get to bring these old, dirty, old, beaten-up bodies that we have. He's gonna give you something new. What is it gonna be like? I don't know, look at Jesus. We're gonna receive bodies similar to his. We won't become God but we will be like Him, okay? We're gonna be in His image. We're going to be receiving glorified bodies. Number three, we're gonna see here that death is necessary to reveal God's victory. Verse 53, when the perishable, that's all this right here, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and mortal, mortal puts on immortality, we get rid of our old bodies, we get the new ones, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Twice here we talk about the victory of God, the victory that Jesus had over death. It's that message of Easter. Jesus looked defeated, there was darkness over the land, there was a great earthquake, there was weeping and wailing and crying and sadness. But when Jesus arose, it proved that he had the power over life and death and it was an example of a great victory that Jesus won. Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Rulers and authorities are demonic presence. Rulers and authorities, Jesus triumphed over them. He declared victory over them. They want want your soul. Satan and his demons, they want you. And they want you dead. Back up a verse here, John 10, 10. What does Satan want? The thief comes in to do what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. What does Satan want for your life? He He wants to destroy you, to steal everything that you have, and to kill you. It's so amazing that we defend sin. What a great propaganda machine Satan has. He's convinced the whole world that if you live Satan's way, that's where the fun is at. But instead, it's like Pinocchio. Remember, he, oh, everybody thought it'd be great if you just could fight all the time and they go to Pleasure Island and they all got stogies in their mouth, these little kids and this little wooden puppet. You know? And they're, they're having this great time in Pleasure Island not realizing that the guy who brought you here, he lured you in with temporary pleasures, but what's he gonna do? He's gonna make a donkey out of you. He's gonna make you his slave. And that's what Satan does. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. He, he tantalizes you with food and drink and fighting and gambling and cigars. And we, we buy into that lie that sin is the best way of life. It's the best way to achieve happiness. What is it? He wants to make a donkey out of us. He wants to make us his slave. He wants to take everything we have. He wants to kill us and Satan would kill every last one of us given the opportunity, but what did Jesus come to do? I came, Jesus, that they may have life, they may have it abundantly. What a different message that is. And so Paul says here, oh death, where is your sting? Where is your power now after the resurrection of Jesus? What do you have on us? The sting of something, a stinger is what a bee can threaten you with, right? My wife hates bees, which is really ironic because she loves gardening and flowers. Just yesterday, she was in the garden all day yesterday planting flowers and things, I'm, you know, just little invitation signs to bees. Hey, every bee everywhere, come to our house. But when they come, she's petrified in fear and she will flee like there's a group of cannibalistic you know, natives chasing her with spears. That's how she is with bees because, and she's not afraid of the bee itself, okay? Because a bee without a stinger is just a black and yellow cotton ball with wings. know they're cute and they're fun you can play with them Uh, she's afraid of the stinger she doesn't want to get stung okay so what Satan wants to cause fear in our in our lives with is this stinger of death and it's not so much just the process of dying like I said last week we go through a lot worse pains probably in life he he's threatening us with sin he says the sting of death is what it's sin That which Satan can threaten your and my existence with is our sin, and the power of sin is the law. Satan is threatening us with sin. You don't belong before God. You're a sinner. God has a wall around heaven for a reason, and it's to keep you out, and he's right. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's always trying to accuse us, but we don't appeal to our own good deeds, do we? We say, you're right, apart from Jesus, I shouldn't be there, but there's one who took the handwriting of ordinance, our rap sheet, That was against us. That was contrary to us, and what did he do? He nailed it to his cross. It's paid in full, okay? That's what we come back to Satan with. The sting of death is sin, the fact that we've done wrong. The scary thing about death is not that someday I'm not gonna be in this body. The scary thing about death is someday I may not be in this body, and I'm not even gonna be here, I'm gonna be in hell. That's the scary part because the power of sin is the law. God's law condemns us. You don't deserve to be here. You see, God's standard to get into heaven is perfect holiness and righteousness. It's God's holiness. And the only way to get that is through God. And so that's the scary thing he says about death, but he says in the death of Christ, the sting of death has been removed. That thing that Satan's been dangling over us all of our life, Hebrews 2 talked about it, about you know, how all our lives we've been fear in the fear of death and Jesus came to free us. Hopefully you remember from last week, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And what he do? He delivered us through who? Through fear of death, were are subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death because he took the sting away, he took the sin away. You take a stinger away from a bee, what do you have? You have a bee who is living in defeat. When a bee stings you, his, if you look close up at his little stinger, it's kind of creepy, uh, they're like serrated edges, it's like some, some crazy knife here and it goes in and it stays in. Okay, and when he pulls out, what happens? Some of his internal organs also come out. And so that bee is temporarily still alive and if you've ever seen a bee after he stings somebody, he looks a little bit confused. He's just kind of walking around, not quite sure what to do with his life now. Uh, He's still alive, but he's in a state of defeat. The Bible says that's what Jesus did with Satan. The stinger's been removed. (laughs) Satan is still around and walking around, and you can still be scared of him because he's Satan. You can still be scared of a bee because he's a bee, but without the stinger, there's nothing they can threaten you with. God has taken that stinger, that sin, and that punishment away. The power of the law has been taken away in Christ. And so Satan may still be around, and you may still fear him, and you still may try to serve him. But he's walking around in a state of perpetual defeat, and it's only a matter of time before Jesus finishes the deal. So with the sting of death gone, like a bee, if you have a bee without a stinger, you can pick up as a little kid and play around with him. and do it. He's not going to hurt you. He can't. So in the same way as a believer, we can take death and we don't have to be scared of it and pretend, you know, we don't have to like, try to ignore death. We can now pick up death like a little fuzzy bee without a stinger and look at it, unafraid, because Jesus removed the sting of death. The Last thing here is that death is necessary to motivate us. Look at verse 58, he says, therefore, therefore means because of everything I just told you about the future, about death, about the rapture of the church. Therefore, because of all this, it should change your life. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because death is coming for us all, because Jesus is coming soon and we don't know when, therefore, abound in the work of the Lord. Let it change how you live. We've said before in this church, death is a great time limit. Without time limits, things don't get done. Do they? Imagine a credit card bill with no due date. You would never get they would never get paid, would they? You ever play a board game, you open it up. As a little kid, we used to play a game called Boggle, it made a really loud, irritating noise with all these little cubes with letters on them, and you make you look for all the little word combinations. It also comes with a little sand hourglass timer. Why do we have that? Because if we didn't, your uncle Joe would sit there at the table for 45 minutes finding every possible word known to man, it'd take the fun out of the game. You gotta give him a time limit. Time limits motivate us to take action. Death is a great motivator, friends, when you realize you've got very little time. Don't take the time that you have and waste it on empty things. Likewise, friends, when we talk about death, we talk about the future, we talk about the rapture, we talk about prophecy. It's meant not to just excite us. We're not just supposed to debate <clears throat> about all the uh, potentialities of the future. Prophecy is meant to change how we live today. We don't just sit around and go, wow, have you read the news today? Wow, do you think, do you think Putin's the Antichrist? Uh, did you read about all the blood moons? And uh, Okay, we don't, forget about your blood moons and stuff, friends. Uh, we don't, prophecy is not meant just to be studied as an academic exercise. It's not just for us to wrangle over the details and debate and argue over the little details. What's prophecy and the knowledge of the future supposed to do? Change how you live today. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Steadfast has the idea that you have found your position you know where you belong, you know what is right, you know what's true. Imagine a guy who is, uh, is steadfast. He's a, a defensive lineman, okay? And he's getting on that line. He knows where he belongs in between this guy and this guy. He knows what his job is. Somebody's coming for you and you're going to block them. You're going to choose to be therefore immovable. I'm gonna, I, I know where I belong and I'm gonna stand here, I'm gonna take my position, I'm gonna take the hit and I'm gonna push up against all that's pushing against me. That's how a Christian is with their Bible. We know where God wants us to stand. We know where we're supposed to be as Christians. We know what is right, we know what is good, we, but we still have to make a choice to be steadfast. I'm gonna live the way this book says. I'm gonna know what this book says. I'm gonna teach what this book says and I'm gonna be immovable. I'm not gonna move. The world is gonna hit me with, you know, psychology is gonna say one thing and Facebook is gonna say another thing and the, and the news is gonna say another thing. It's just gonna keep hitting me, but I'm going to be immovable. It's how a believer has to be. Because we know Jesus is coming soon, because we know that death happens to us all, I'm not gonna waste my life. What will I do? I will always abound in the work of the Lord. This word abound is a a fun word. It's, It's a word that means to do something excessively, exceedingly, like imagine somebody throwing on a grand party and you're just, you just went all out, and you went completely overboard because whatever that event is celebrating, it means that much to you. This is the word that he's using here, to be excessive in your what? In your service of the Lord. He says that's how we're to serve God. We, we, we look for reasons, to be in church, not for reasons. Well, can I get out of church this week because I can go to a game or I can go to this or I can go to that? We look for reasons to be here. It's a priority to us. We don't. We don't look for ways to. Well, I'm not going to give this week because well, I got better things I'd rather do. And hey, let's go out and take this fancier vacation. You know, we're abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't just go. You know, I could work in my yard or be out in the boat. He says we need to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? He says because your work in the Lord is not in vain, vain is something that means it's empty, it's without value, it's without, there's no reward, there's nothing, there's no commendation as a result of doing it, it's not necessary, vain things aren't necessarily evil things, we're not just talking about sin here, even though sin is vain, we're talking about all those activities of life that we do that don't have a reward, do we have a lot of that? Do you, does anybody reward you for watching Netflix? Okay, not necessarily bad depending on what you watch, But nobody's rewarding you saying, well done, wow. This guy just binged an entire season on Netflix last night. Well done, brother, you're a hero. And nobody's doing that. Uh, There's no reward for doing some of the other empty things we do. Fishing, you know, nothing wrong with fishing, okay? Kevin, don't get mad at me. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with fishing, but nobody's gonna go, wow, look at this, this guy. Well, look at the one he brought in. There's no eternal reward. You're not gonna have so many eternal fish trophy up in your you know, abode in heaven someday for what you did there. It's, it's just empty. Not bad, I'm not saying you can't do these things. But the Bible says there's so much of our life that is filled with just vain emptiness. It doesn't amount to anything. And, he, and there's a reminder that there's going to come a day when God will judge, not our sin, but our works. Now this needs to be said, there's a lot of Christians who don't understand the two judgments at the end of time here. Okay, you have the judgment of the wicked, which is called the great white throne. Do believers stand at the great white throne? No, they don't. Did you know that your sins will never be judged again? When you were, became a believer in Jesus Christ, all the sins that you ever committed were nailed on the cross with Jesus. The Bible says God takes your sins, he puts them behind his back. He voluntarily chooses not to think about your sin. The Bible says when God forgives man, he puts it in the depths of the sea, it can't be retrieved. He separates you from your sin as far as the east as the west. Okay, so no, your sins aren't going to be brought up as this giant video that everybody sits around and eats popcorn at, you know, in eternity. Wow, did you see what this guy did? You know, that's not going to happen. But with the, with the unrighteous, those who have not come to Christ, they've not confessed their sins, they've not repented, they've not been born again, it says the books will be opened and every sin you ever committed, every lustful thought, every proud moment, it will be opened and God will judge, us according to, judge you according to your sins and he will cast you into hell. But there's a different judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ that we will all stand before God to receive in the body all the things that we did. It says good or evil, but it's, the Greek word means literally light or heavy. The things that were valuable and the things that were empty. God will judge us according to our, not our sin, but our works. What did you do with that foundation of Jesus that you built? 1 Corinthians 3.12-13 says this, now if anyone builds on the foundation, that's Jesus Christ, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, those are valuable things. You can try them with fire, and they're still gonna be there. In fact, they'll be more pure. But if anyone builds with wood, hay, and straw, wood, hay, and straw, you apply fire to that, what happens? It's gone. You have these little cinders, and they disappear into the air, and they're gone forever. That's the empty, not necessarily sinful, but just the empty, worthless things that we fill our life with. Bible says there's gonna come a day when God will try these things. And it says each one's work will become manifest, it's gonna be displayed. I see you a little bit on Sunday, and you look good, and you're friendly, and you're fun, and you laugh at my jokes sometimes, and, um, you know, and I love you here. But I don't see everything that you do at home. I don't see what you do at work. But Bible says there will come a day when every, every minor event that we did, every empty, every vain activity, or the good activities that we did, the ways that we served the Lord as we abounded in the work of the Lord. He says it will become manifest. It's gonna be revealed how we spent our life, what we built on our foundation of Jesus Christ. He says everyone's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. This is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, receive in his body those things done, whether good or evil. This is the judgment seat of Christ. It's the Greek word bema. Have you ever heard the bema seat? It comes from that Greek word. It's a reward seat. The closest thing we have to that is the Olympics. You have the podium where they stand on. You know, da, 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 you know, we, we put the gold, silver, and bronze medals on people's around people's necks that's the bama the bible says every one of us as believers will still stand before God and our life's works will be judged and he will put a reward on us not a gold medal but a crown there's several different crowns discussed in the bible but we don't talk about that today we don't have time but what it's saying is simply that every one of our works will be judged by God one day and so we want to live for that. We want, to allow, we want to allow death to have its full impact in our life. There is wisdom in the house of mourning, and the wise take it to heart. Friends, let's take death to heart today. Let's look at it as the stingless bumblebee. Let's let it remind us of a few things. One, that death is necessary for life. Don't hate death completely. It is the enemy, but it's the doorway to the other side. It's how we escape this sepia-toned Kansas world. It's necessary for our new bodies, this worn-out tent we're gonna upgrade. It's necessary to reveal God's victory. Satan can't hold death over our heads any longer, and it's necessary to motivate it, made it, motivate us because without it, friends, we will become incurably selfish. We're just gonna live for me and the glory of me and what is fun to me, and then we're gonna realize at the end of our life here, I didn't, I didn't live for much. Instead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, let's abound, let's be excessive in the works of the Lord, knowing that in those works, they're not in vain. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that you have given us your word that shows us, just pulls back the curtains and lets us see what's on the other side. Father, for those who are here today, I pray that if there's any here who does not know where they're going, they're still lost. God, I pray that this Today would be the day of their salvation, the day that they would make sure that they are at death, God, going to be ushered by our Father's strong arms and carried to where we belong. God, I pray for the rest of us who are believers, we know we're believers. God, help us to, before that great judgment day, help us to evaluate our works today. Let's look at our lives. Let's see what we're building on this foundation of Jesus Christ. Is there a a lot of gold, silver, and precious gems? abounding in the work of the Lord? God, evaluate our giving. Evaluate our serving. Evaluate our our time with you. Evaluate our attitude towards you. Do we think about you? Do we seek for you with our whole heart? Or God, do we live much like the rest of the world where we just kind of live for what's pleasurable, what's fun in the moment, wood, hay, and stubble at a time when that'll just be burned off and disappear? Father, I pray that for us as believers, we would live for... The, abounding in the work of the Lord, God, so that that, at that day, that day when you will judge our works, we won't stand there with simply the foundation of Jesus and a lot of of dust, a lot of ashes. Father, I pray that we would build on this foundation gold, silver, and precious gems, eternally significant things. We ask all this in Christ's name.
0: Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.